Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, Callum here with a quick message from our wonderful, wonderful sponsor. Your home away from home is waiting for you at each of the resident hotels in London and Liverpool. You can enjoy excellent rooms in exceptional locations with heartfelt hospitality. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, thoughtfully chosen destinations within thriving cities. The Resident offers relaxed enclaves from which you can venture out to experience the city your way with The Resident's insider knowledge. Speaking of insider knowledge, Whitehall Sources starts now. We've seen now tens of thousands of people take to the streets following the massacre of Jewish people, the single largest loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust, chanting for the erasure of Israel from the map. To my mind, there's only one way to describe those marches. They are hate marches. Welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. We're recording on the morning of Wednesday, the 8th of November. Thank you very much for finding us. If you are new here, you are particularly welcome. And if you've been here from the start, thank you very much for your wonderful patience and wonderful support for the podcast as well. Make sure you tell your friends this is the place to come for insider analysis on what is going on in Westminster and beyond in the political conversation right now. Uh, alongside me as ever, Kirsty Buchanan, former special advisor to Theresa May as Prime Minister. Hello, Kirsty. Good morning to you, Karen. Lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. Lots to talk about on the podcast today. We're going to be discussing economics before the end of the episode. Are we already in a recession? And we'll be speaking to an actual economist to give a bit of a report card of Rishi Sunak's performance up against his pledges that are economy related. Plus, does the King's speech from yesterday mean that we're headed for a general election in May? Mm, Well, we'll discuss that before the end of the episode as well. But first, we want to start with what's really become the conversation of the week around protests on Armistice Day, pro-Palestine protests on Armistice Day specifically. But within all of that, there's a lot to consider. The language of the Home Secretary's come under scrutiny and indeed criticism for being inflammatory, calling marches, the pro-Palestine marches, hate marches. Uh, Also, the Labour MP Imran Hussein has quit Sir Keir Starmer's shadow team over his desire to strongly advocate for a ceasefire in Gaza. So difficulties for the Labour Party continue. Uh, Let's welcome to the podcast Max Wilson. He worked for five years in the Labour Party in a variety of roles uh, for the Parliamentary Labour Party's Political Services Unit and as a senior political advisor in the Leader of the Opposition's office. Max, welcome back to the podcast. Great to see you. Thanks for having me back, Callum. No, it's good to have you there. Well, let's start, shall we, with the, I suppose, dramatic development. You know, our listeners will remember that we uh, spoke to you about Labour's own conundrum on this in in our episode last week, when it comes to the messaging around um, the conflict between Israel and Hamas, affecting hundreds and and thousands of people uh, in Gaza and and beyond, really. Uh, But now this development, Labour MP Imran Hussein quitting 
he says he's going to remain committed to Labour's agenda, but that his view on Gaza differed substantially. That's what he said, substantially, from the position that Keir Starmer has adopted. Uh, talk to us about your reaction to this resignation uh, and indeed how dramatic this is. Yeah, I think um, in many ways it's unsurprising because of kind of the nature of um, Imran Hussain's seat, uh, largely. Um, when I was on last week, I didn't really want to um, drop names, um, you know, prematurely. Um, but I'm, I'm not hugely surprised that Imran himself has um, resigned. I mean, there, there are some obvious things, um, which, you know, around, um, he's MP for Bradford. Bradford's got a very large Muslim population. Like, that's that's just one aspect of it. I think it's a little bit of a superficial analysis. I think that probably the more um, substantive element is probably the um, the electoral history of what's gone on in in Bradford. I'm old enough to remember the by election um, about ten years ago in Bradford, and um, it was it was supposed to be an absolute easy win for Labour. It was an incumbent Labour seat, and um, uh, Imran Hussain stood in in Bradford West rather than Bradford East, if I remember rightly. I might be getting that wrong. But um, the point was that George Galloway stood there um, for respect and he um, he won, uh, which was a huge shock. This was supposed to be a really safe Labour seat. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because from what I hear, um, George Galloway um, and his, his crew are looking to, to, to see whether there are other electoral opportunities on the back of this. And I think that um, a few Labour MPs are starting to feel a little bit of pressure, obviously from their constituents uh, who are writing and their mailbags are getting full and MPs always react to that when they feel that their, their constituents are um, uh heightened around a particular issue. But I think that um, with the particular threat that George Galloway can potentially inflict on certain constituencies, um, Bradford being one, possibly areas of Birmingham, possibly East London as well, um, Tower Hamlets, for example, I think that with all that, all that fairly recent electoral history um, and, and what it means personally to Imran Hussain as well, I think that he's probably thinking that he needs to shore up his own local position, even if that means sacrificing his front bench position. It's really interesting, this, Kirsty. Does it apply additional pressure to Keir Starmer? And what does it say about his, I suppose, about his leadership? Does he have a grip on this? This is the underlying question that has now been dominating discussions on this topic in relation to the Labour Party for a number of weeks. So what is this doing to Keir Starmer's leadership? Um, look, I uh, I think broadly the same as I think, you know, I thought last week, I think... Uh, the, the threat, the challenge to Keir Starmer's leadership from this is a little overwritten and a little overblown. Uh, I mean, Max is 100% right. You know, Bradford is uh, is a city with one of the highest Muslim populations in the UK, and I think some of it is a reflection of what I su- suspect is a huge and overweening uh, constituency mailbag for him. Uh, he's also part of the Socialist Campaign Group, which is a uh, this sort of uh, hard left rump, if you like, of the party, uh, which was supportive of, of Jeremy Corbyn uh, and Hussein was an ally of Jeremy Corbyn. So do I think this is the start of a, of a series of kind of mass uh, resignations from senior, uh, you know, people in positions of power in the Labour Party in the front bench? No, I don't. I think there might be, as Max says, there might be some who have their own particular electoral challenges. Uh, There might be some more, but I don't think it's part of a widespread uh, issue. Um, uh, And actually, you know, uh, the ability of leaders to withstand party pressure to do what they believe to be the right thing... um, uh, is is some of the part and parcel of being a leader, you know. Uh, can you imagine right now if he said, oh, you know, it's got a bit uncomfortable, we've had 48-odd councillors resign and I've had a front bench resignation and I'm under quite a lot of pressure, I'm going to break with the, you know, with the, with the line that I've held without any particular change of circumstances on the ground in Gaza right now, uh, I, I think would would be, you know, would leave him open to to you know attacks from the Conservative Party about flip floppery. So uh, I think this is the right position for him to hold for now, and I and I would be surprised if it led to you know wholesale resignations from from front benches. And that's an interesting point, actually, Max, for you to reflect upon as well. Actually, if Keir Starmer plays this right, 
this could be a really good opportunity for him to say, look at my leadership. I'm, I'm, I'm holding the line. I'm performing well as a leader. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a big part of what he's been trying to do for the last three, four years. Part of the Starmer project is demonstrating that strong leadership. And that is uh, also one of the, um, historically, that's one of the, the, the most important factors when it comes to uh, people deciding on which party they're going to vote for, vote for. They vote for strong leaders. That's, that's a really good outlier when it comes to polling, seeing what people think about leadership. So if he can demonstrate that um, here, I think that he's on to a winner. Um I think that uh, he's he's definitely got some struggles ahead. I think it's going to be a difficult time for him. But I think the the uh, positives of holding this strong position in favour of um, supporting Israel is going to um, ultimately not only, as I said last week, not only the right thing to do morally, it's the right thing to do politically. Um, I think that also, as I said last week, um, I think that the the issue is that um, whether events in Israel themselves actually force his hand. And I think we'll have to keep a, a close eye on that. And I suppose also to a lesser extent what goes on in America as well, which might provide political cover for, for some sort of change of position. And there, I think, actually, you know, the cavalry, if you like, might be riding to Starmer's rescue before this costs him too much uh, political capital within certain sections of the party. You know, we've seen uh, the US Secretary of State uh, Blinken go out again for another round of shuttle diplomacy. Uh, obviously, you know, Biden um, is under a lot of pressure from the from the left of his own party uh, to change this position about humanitarian pause into calls for a for a ceasefire. Um, and interestingly, you know, the pressure is growing internally on Netanyahu as well from the families of the hostages. Now, uh, you know, we're a month into this conflict. We've seen a uh, brutal bombardment of, of, you know, a ceaseless bombardment of Gaza. Uh, and there are two objectives here, you know, stated by Netanyahu, one which was to destroy Hamas and the other was to rescue the hostages. Now, increasingly, we're seeing protests from uh, the families of those hostages that, you know, that they are having difficulty squaring the objective of one with the objective of the other. Uh, and actually, you know, there's been a shift, I think, in Netanyahu's position to say to Hamas, which is, I think, an attempt to buy him a little bit more time. Um, to say, right, well, we will have a ceasefire when you release the hostages. Now, I don't think that position will hold for long. Uh, I think behind the scenes, you know, international pressure is increasing uh, on Netanyahu uh, to, you know, to agree to a humanitarian pause. And meaningfully speaking, you know, uh, there is not a huge difference between a humanitarian pause of an indefinite period and a ceasefire. Uh, and I think Netanyahu, Netanyahu knows that. Um, so I think, you know, uh, I think behind the scenes, the pressure is growing and domestically the pressure is growing on Netanyahu too. Uh, and we might be seeing the end of the first stage of this conflict. Let's discuss the other sort of element of UK domestic pressure that has really dominated this week. And that is the issue of pro-Palestine marches, uh, which have been ongoing every Saturday for the last few weekends and are planned for this Saturday, the 11th of November, Armistice Day. Uh, there's been a, a lot of conversation about who should act in this situation. Today, Steve Barclay, the health secretary, said there would be ongoing discussions uh, after Sir Mark Rowley, the Met Commissioner, the Met Police Commissioner, said the threshold for an outright ban on this protest, which requires a threat of serious disorder, had not been met. Uh, so ministers continuing to push for a ban on pro-Palestinian demonstrations planned for this weekend. Interestingly, Steve Barclay refused to use the words of the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, who called the marches hate marches. Uh, but he did say... Uh, that though some people on the marches, there were people on the marches expressing some extremely inappropriate and some very hurtful views. Max, what are you thinking about this? This conversation has dominated. When we were doing Times Radio Breakfast at the weekend, we were talking about this all weekend, last weekend. And actually, the sort of one of the conclusions was, if ministers really wanted to ban this, they could. The Home Secretary, with the Prime Minister, with the Cabinet, could bring forward legislation that would simply ban this from happening on the 11th of November. The protesters, the organisers say, look, this is happening on Saturday. It's not near the Cenotaph. It's not near 11 o'clock when the silence will be observed. And the route takes us away from kind of Whitehall and central London. 
what is happening here, Max? What, what, why is there such an, uh, a divisive conversation stirring up around this? Well, I don't think you'd even need legislation to end that. I think that the, 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 a lot of the um, dialogue, a lot of the narrative is about there is a risk of some sort of confrontation between the um, pro-Palestinian marchers and uh, other other um, other protesters, um, which I think is I, I, look, I'm not I'm not a security or a policing expert. I don't know whether that's a realistic analysis or not. Um, slightly, I won't know whether it's that sort of chat is slightly um, suiting some people's uh, narratives when it comes to this. Um, I kind of struggle with this issue actually. I kind of struggle with it because on the one hand, I want I want people to be able to mark uh, the um, the the 11th of November properly. I want Remembrance Sunday to go ahead properly. I think we, we need to respect those that want to be able to do that. Um, but on the other hand, it just seems a bit odd to me that you're wanting to ban people who want to mark war dead um, on the 11th of November. So I, I just kind of struggle um, to find my own personal position on this, I suppose. So I have no struggle on this one at all. I think it would be... Uh... Uh, the height of folly uh, for the government, which uh, expounds free speech at every opportunity uh, to ban this march. Uh, It is one of the fundamental pillars of our democracy that we have a right to peaceful protest. Um, And it is self-evidently true that when we see the hundreds of thousands of people that have turned out, the vast majority of those are engaged in a peaceful protest. I don't agree with Suella Braverman that these are hate-filled marches. I think there are elements of that that is true, and I think there are clearly people within that that are anti-Semitic and full of hate for Israel uh, and even for British Jews. Um, And every time I listen to the head of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, Ben Jamal, explain to me why from the river to the sea is not an anti-Semitic chant, I feel I'm being gaslit uh, because it self-evidently is. have it. And so I think Mark Rowley is right uh, not to bow to political pressure and try and ban this. Uh, he has given himself the caveat that obviously if they get intel, the, you know, the far right are going to turn up uh, and that makes it a considerably more uh, impactful public order issue, then, then there is a, a possibility that they might uh, have to revisit their decision. But I think it's the right decision to take. Having said all that, um, having the right to protest uh, legally uh, is not the same as whether morally you should. And, you know, if you really are engaged in peaceful protests and you care about social cohesion, you know, I'd like some of the people on this march to think about, you know, what it means to march every weekend. Every weekend you are turning central London into a no-go area for British Jews. That's the reality. You know, I have Jewish friends that say to me they just won't let their kids go into central London when these marches are on. They're too frightened for their safety. So is if you, you know, if you care about, you know, peace and solidarity, this is what you're doing. And there is a world where the PSC could say, look, if we want to show our support for the people of Gaza, we will have a march, you know, this Saturday, every Saturday until the war is over and there is a two-state solution and Gazans and, you know, the West Bank is no longer occupied and Mm. Gazans can live in peace. They could do that. But to do this every weekend and effectively, you know, uh, leave Jewish families within this country, hundreds of thousands of Jewish families within this country in fear and unable to go uh, about their business in London and increasing anti-Semitic attacks uh, and, you know, anti-Muslim sort of abuse and attacks too, um, you know, you have to ask whether this is the right tactic for the PSC to pursue. And so uh, I suppose then, Max, there's the kind of political consideration in all of this. What, In terms of Suella Braverman's language particularly, hate marches is how, is how she's described it, and I think those are the words to kind of consider. Is this in some way, is it just stirring up division? I, I'm, trying to, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to match the politics to the reality on the ground and to try to work out who is who is winning here in what has become a really messy debate. 
of course, Bram and Sterling up division. That's her. That's her raison d'etre. That's her reason for being in politics. That's that's everything. Everything that Suella Braverman is doing right now is based around the Tory leadership uh, election that's going to come in about a year's time. Suella Braverman is not really Home Secretary anymore. She's essentially a full-time Tory leadership candidate. She's farmed off home secretarying to, um, to to Robert Jenrick and to, to Rishi Sunak to a certain extent on boats. She's essentially a full-time campaigner. So everything that she says has to be seen through that lens. And you're seeing it through her horrific, um, but also uh, ridiculous comments around the homeless this week. And now hate marches. She is trying to shore up the right wing of her parliamentary party, and she's doing a really good job of it. Meanwhile, the other candidates, Kemi Badenoch and James Cleverley, are actually coming across as fairly reasonable, sensible, grown-up politicians, especially James Cleverley. Um, and I, I, have some, I have admiration for that. I just think that ultimately, when it comes to leadership elections, either Tory or Labour, the, uh, the candidate that says, says to the electorate to eat your greens doesn't usually win. It's usually the candidate, certainly in recent years, have pandered to the, uh, to the extremities. I'm either hard left with Labour or hard right with the Tories. Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of things to pick up on there. A lot has been made of the body language between Rishi Sunak uh, and Suella Braverman uh, yesterday during the King's Speech debate. They had to sit next to each other and uh, Rishi Sunak was said to be leaning away from Suella Braverman as if she was uh, kind of toxic. Uh, and I, you know, and I note that both her comments about hate-filled marches um, and this ridiculous comment about, you know, uh, rough sleepers sleeping in tents as a lifestyle choice. Uh, you've I've yet to hear a single cabinet minister endorse those words or repeat those words. Uh, and Max is 100% right. Look, you know, Rishi Sunak's full reshuffle hasn't happened. You know, uh, there are other people who I am sure behind the scenes are, are, you know, quietly working away on their leadership campaign. But, you know, if you're James Cleverley or Kemi Badenoch, what are you doing with your most of the time? You're doing your day job. You're doing what you were put in uh, the cabinet to do and are paid quite handsomely to do, by the way. And if Suella Braverman continues to do nothing but advance the cause of Suella Braverman uh, on the platform of the Home Secretary, if I was Rishi Singh, I could say, OK, if you want to, you know, do a full time campaign to be the next Tory leader, you can do it from the back benches. Thanks. I'd rather have a Home Secretary uh, who is concentrating on doing the, you know, the job and the huge challenges that a Home Secretary faces at the moment. Um, and and. Uh, you know, get rid of her at the next uh, reshuffle because Max is right. She's not doing a job anymore. She's simply uh, trying to hoover up uh, and shore up her position as the right candidate in uh, should there be a leadership challenge uh, after a general election defeat and uh, sowing division uh, at a at a very time when you know we we need at least um, you know I don't. You know, I don't agree with anybody at this particular moment in time using any platform they have to stoke division. We need calm and mature conversations uh, in increasingly polarised public space. Uh, and I think she, you know, if she can't do that, you know, uh, if she can't respect that as Home Secretary, then she should be removed. The only thing I would add to that is, whilst I, whilst I absolutely think that Suella Braverman is doing all of this to advance the cause of Suella Braverman, I absolutely think that... Part of me does also wonder whether in parallel to that, um, there is some sort of, or at least it, it appears from number 10, that there may be some sort of electoral advantage from having, an, having somebody who is prepared to say this inflammatory language rather than it coming from number 10, that actually might appeal to some of the electorate in some seats. Um, I don't agree with that as an electoral strategy. I also don't necessarily think that is the case. But I just wonder whether some figures in number 10 maybe give her a little bit of carte blanche to do this because it, they think it may have some electoral advantages and they think it's better for her to be doing it rather than number 10. Well, I mean, all I can say to that is conversations I have had with people at number 10 uh, wouldn't indicate that. They would indicate a certain amount of frustration uh, with some of her language choices um, uh, and... Uh, that's not to say that I've had any conversation with them about reshuffle or that they would tell me anything about reshuffle if I asked. But 
uh, I don't think that is the case. Um, uh, I think they find this kind of inflammatory language is unhelpful uh, and unnecessary as everybody else does. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that I, I, yeah, I just don't think that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just a final one for you, Max, um, on Labour and, and where we're at kind of with the Labour Party. Uh, I take this from Dan Bloom at Political. Labour left MPs tabling an amendment to the King's speech calling for a ceasefire to try to force a vote on the floor of the Commons. Uh, Dan observes it wouldn't pass, but it would show the scale or otherwise of support among MPs. Um, obviously, there's parliamentary process involved in all of that, but there's a kind of interesting principle that that could be the sort of next move, if you like, of that rump of Labour MPs. Yeah, I, um, I I was chatting to a few Labour people in the last few days, um, and th- there is a feeling that um, a vote is is likely um, at some point in the next week or so. Uh, I think it's still up in the air about exactly what form that would take, whether it's uh, part of the King's speech debates over the next few days. Um, the SNP have tabled uh, a, a motion which could be put up for a debate. Ultimately, it's down to the Speaker um, on what's chosen to be uh, to be debated and voted on. Um, I think that because of the... Because, frankly, the fact that we're even discussing this shows what a politically salient issue that is, which means it's more likely that the Speaker is then going to take it on and put it to a vote. So from what I understand, there may well be a vote coming da- coming this way. Um, how Labour reacts to that vote, what sort of whip they impose, I don't know. If they were to impose a three-line whip uh, to vote it down, that would be problematic uh, very much uh, for obvious reasons goes back to what we were talking earlier about resignations, probably more likely is an abstention and uh, a one-line whip, say, and you just um, you just hope to tell everybody to stay away from the vote. But even if that is the case, that creates potential issues for Labour and Peace, because if they, um, if they, if they, even if they abstain, then they're going to come under pressure from their constituents asking why you didn't vote down, uh, sorry, vote in favour of a, a, a ceasefire. So the, a, a vote is, at the moment, what we're talking about with with labor individual labor front benches positions on this it's kind of all theoretical right um when it comes to an actual vote it's black or white you're either voting or you're voting against or you're you're abstaining and then it's much harder to hide away from it's much harder to row back on and it's much harder to muddy the waters when it comes to collective responsibilities so i think we'll just have to wait and see what the parliamentary process is in terms of what that vote actually looks like but certainly i think there'll be a large amount of party management going on in the next few days to try and uh, dampen down that next threat well cue a one-line whip and uh, a lot of all of a sudden very important diary commitments Mm. uh, for Labour MPs in problematic constituencies, let's put it that way. I didn't abstain, I didn't vote for, I simply wasn't there because I had a very important diary commitment that had been... By Boris Johnson and Heathrow. Yeah, long-standing and I I couldn't get out of it. Uh, That's how they'll probably manage it. Um, uh, You know, there's a a great rule in life, you know, if you can't, you know, if you... Uh, you know, if you can't win the game, you just take your bat and ball and, you know, leave the field. Leg it. Yeah, get out of here. Uh, Max, thank you very much. Great to have you on the podcast again. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oh, hello. Well, you thought you'd got rid of me, didn't you? Well, here I am in the break as well. You are welcome. Here at Whitehall Sources, we are always enthusiastic about rigorous journalism. So we have been tapping up our very special sources to find out more about The Resident, which says it has excellent rooms in exceptional locations, providing heartfelt hospitality. I'm pleased to say their story checks out, actually. Here's one of our sources, Bossman56, who says, Just spent three days at the resident Covent Garden. Room was excellent, so were the staff. The room and the hotel, clean and tidy. Staff were friendly and very efficient. We'll be going back soon. And in the interest of double sourcing, it's just what we have to do as rigorous journalists. How about this from Gufton, which I assume must be a codename. The best hotel I've stayed at in London. The customer service was unsurpassed from the moment I walked in the door. It actually all makes us very proud to be supported by The Resident on Whitehall Sources. And you can join The Resident online. Go to residenthotels.com. And if you all do that, they'll actually just be very pleased with us. So go to residenthotels.com. Thank you. This is Whitehall Sources. Thanks very much for being with us on the podcast today. Let's turn then to have a bit of a consideration about the King's speech. Uh, the last King's speech before the election is what Chris Mason, whom we heart, the political editor of the BBC, uh, calls it. But he asks, will it change the political weather? He says, today felt like a ceremonial comma, a punctuation mark in an autumn of familiar political sentences. Uh, which is very nice. Uh, here on the podcast for this section uh, to discuss the King's speech and what it could mean going forward is Sarah Southern, who was an advisor to Prime Minister David Cameron. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Uh, do you agree with Chris Mason? Was it a ceremonial comma? I can't disagree with him. I certainly can't disagree with him. I think it it <laughs> does really feel, and it's certainly the, the mood I think that is around Westminster and you know, kind of with political uh, nerds like myself, it does feel like we're coming to the end of the chapter. And I think some of the things that were, uh, you know, in the King's speech yesterday, we've been aware for some time, you know, it, it's not as though there was anything particularly radical. Uh, I think the thing that kind of tickled me most was probably... Uh, the actual moving forward of the leasehold plan, you know, making it easier for people to extend the leasehold. I think that's something that, you know, people who own flats or have bought leasehold houses will be interested in. But a lot of it, I just don't think it really excites anyone that much. Yeah. The other thing that Chris Mason says, uh, Kirsty, is this King's speech felt very Sunakian, as in Rishi Sunak. Uh, iterative rather than explosive, but with an emphasis on ideas he's personally passionate passionate about, reforming post-16 education in England, banning young people from smoking, etc. But I suppose there are dividing lines in there with Labour as well. There's a kind of There's a kind of them and us going on too. Yeah. First of all, I have to say that Sunakian should be some... Uh, alien race, you know, Doctor Who series. We're <laughs> under attack from the Sunakians. The Sunakians. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, look, there's there's a bit of dividing line stuff in there. I think that you know, over the uh, gas licenses, which is a load of hooey over nothing. Frankly, it's more mood music than anything else because the reality is, is that you know, uh, whether you've got a ton of licenses or not, you know, it's dry, you know, the North North Sea is drying up, so they're unlikely to be bombarded by uh, license requests going forward. Uh, but that was a clever bit of kind of uh, mood music uh, and wedgery between the Conservatives and Labour. Um, I mean, uh, you know, again, if you have your, your billing, if you like, your branding is, you know, I'm prepared to take you know the tough decisions for the long term you kind of look at this speech and go yeah because again there's there's some good stuff in there there's good stuff over uh leasehold reform 
Um, there's the very welcome uh, end to, or the promise of uh, an end to no fault evictions. Although we've been here before, I think this is the third third time there's been a, a legislative promise for no fault evictions, and I think a lot of people go, "Okay, believe it when I see it." Uh, it's particularly strong on crime and sentencing, with a but in that, which I will come to in a minute. But apart from that, it's a bit. It's a bit of a kind of pick and mix king speech, isn't it? I mean, you know, when you're mm. billing yourself as, you know, long term, uh, you know, you'd expect some. I mean, they can't, obviously, because as, you know, we've discussed before, um, you know, planning reform and, and infra- you know, things to speed up infrastructure development, et cetera, are going to bring you uh, uh, into, a, into a problem with your own party. Uh, and so that's why there's not a lot of that kind of house building. You'd expect something in that, um, and that territory is now very much owned uh, by Labour. But what is fascinating about the crime stuff for me, uh, if you're trying to avoid and appease your own backbenches, this is a real sting in the tail of this. There's some very good stuff about sentencing. There's harder sentences in there, um, you know, tougher on knife crime, uh those who've committed rape or serious sexual offences would serve their whole sentence rather than uh, be allowed out on early release. So those sorts of things, you know, tough on, you know, defendants that um, can be forced to come to court uh, to hear their sentence. Uh, and if they don't, they'll have another two years tacked on. So there's some really good, strong stuff in sentencing. And yet what sits underneath that is two uh, two pieces of, of promised legislation which are specifically designed to ease overcrowding in prisons and, in other words, let a lot of people out of prison or stop people going to prison in the first place who otherwise would, and for no other reason than they're behind on their capital bill programme for prisons and they are uh, at maximum kind of headroom and overcrowded. So uh, there's a presumption, there's going to be a presumption of use against short sentences, you know, and this is a you know depends on who you talk to within the criminal justice system. There is a there is an argument to be had for the short sharp shock uh, that, that that some you know some judges will, will will very passionately advocate for. There's also an argument that if you send someone in for a sentence of four or five months, all they end up doing is coming out much more hardened uh, to a yeah. criminal life, and you know, and and the chances of them uh, getting a job and getting you know reintegrated back into society become much much harder. Uh, uh, but that that will have you know an effect of releasing probably about four thousand spaces. But the other one that's involved in it, which is much more problematic from a party management point of view, is a massive extension of the home de- detention curfew, so that actually you're getting into sentences there where people who would serve long sentences for quite serious crimes will now be eligible for home detention curfew, which is where you have these ele- electronic tags on you. And, you know, once that begins to play out and once the reality of, of some of those people and what the crimes they've committed actually being back out in the community, I think that's a real problem for them within party management point of view going into the election. And I, I'm not entirely sure that that was a fight they needed to pick right now. Yeah. One of the things that I really wanted to pick up on in the aftermath then of the King's speech yesterday uh, was this rather uh, juicy, again, for political nerds like us and you listening, uh, this rather juicy tweet from John Craig, chief political correspondent at Sky News, who says, senior Labour MP and close ally of Keir Starmer tells me Labour MPs are now speculating that the government's light, in inverted commas, programme of legislation, only 20 or so bills, including many carried over, as we've alluded to, suggests Rishi Sunak is plotting an early general election in May next year. Sarah, what do you make of that? Well, it's the hot topic of conversation for political circles, isn't it? Um, you know, it certainly was all people were talking about at party conference uh, up in Manchester back in October. I'm sure that it's a lot of what people were talking about at Labour conference too. It is something that people are speculating. He could go as late as you know January if he was to dissolve Parliament in December of next year. But that looks a bit weak, doesn't it? Is that really what you want to do? Go to the absolute final moment that you can possibly have it? If you were to have a October, November election, do you really want activists out campaigning? I don't know what the weather's like with you guys today, but it's certainly tipping with rain where I am. It's not a great way of getting people out on the doorstep and encouraging people to vote. 
it would make sense to have it in May in terms of it fitting with the cycle. You know, we've obviously got the mayoral elections in London in May. There will be local elections. It would make a lot of sense. But is he going to have pressure from MPs who fear they might not get across the line, that they want to stay in post for as long as possible to try and win back, uh, you know, favour with the public? I mean, on this one, I kind of have to say, well, duh. You know, I mean, of course... Number 10 is plotting for a potential election in May and a potential autumn election and, 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 right? I mean, you would be foolish if you weren't gaming out all uh, all potential eventualities. And, you know, uh, I don't remember anybody at number 10 saying to anybody, yeah, no, we've definitely shut the door on May. It's definitely not happening. Uh, the timing of it will be uh, when is most opportune for them in terms of the economy and what they think is going to happen with the economy and when they think they've got the maximum chances of people having some hope and some faith that, you know, the sunny uplands, uh, to coin a good old Osborne Cameron mm. phrase, uh, can at least be seen from the, you know, from their rooftops, if not, you know, if not immediately uh, in front of them right now. Um, so, I mean, it's no big startling revelation. Yes, of course, they're plotting for May and they're plotting for autumn. Uh, the other story that I always found was a little bit kind of uh, over-whipped and over-egged, uh, as stories in Westminster so often are, is the idea that we couldn't... <laughs> Whipped and over egg. Uh, uh, <laughs> is that, am I mixing my metaphors again? Oh, there we go. Uh, no, no, not, not at all, it, not at all. It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't sit here and mix my metaphors, would it? Um, <laughs> is the idea that we can't have it in November because, uh, you know, of security issues and five eyes and, you know, and, and the US having an election. I mean, really, I don't think that's an issue. Um, and in terms of the weather, I know this isn't 2019 anymore, but, you know, uh, Boris Johnson managed to secure an ATC majority in December. Uh, the Sunakians certainly can't look forward to anything like that. Um, uh, but, you know. But I guess in December 2019, he had a lot of support and activists from the Tories were willing to, to do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That might not necessarily be the case now from what I'm seeing. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's not, you know, if they think the economy will look better in the autumn than it looks in May, they'll go in the autumn regardless. of. And the weather is a factor, of course it is, but they will go in the autumn if they have to. Uh, I think it all depends on that. But yes, of course, they're plotting for May. <laughs> Exciting stuff. Uh, Sarah, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Great to have you on. Thank you. Let's turn now on the podcast to have a little look at the economy and, well, the word recession, actually, which, um, as I do too often, I'm going to lean on the West Wing here. I remember in the West Wing, Kirsty, they always used to refuse to use the word recession around the White House because they worried it would add credibility to the notion that one was on the way. Um, they used to, I think they used to call it bagel <laughs> in one episode of the West Wing. Uh, in any case, we're going to talk about recessions, so apologies if we're about to give it any credence or credibility. But on that, there have been reports in the last, even this week, Bloomberg put out some analysis suggesting that Britain could already be in recession uh, because of interest rates rising and, well, indeed soaring interest rates is how they describe it, rising unemployment, uh, households more cautious about spending. Uh, Bloomberg did their analysis and to do analysis on the podcast with you today. We've got Simon French, Chief Economist and Head of Research at Panmure Gordon, previously of the Cabinet office simon hello welcome to the podcast thank you for having me on callum great to have you are we are we giving undue credence and credibility to a recession by discussing the word recession you are um the uk faces that risk because of a combination of stubbornly high inflation rising interest rates to try and combat uh that inflation, but also the fact that a mature economy like the UK, which is in a a lower growth path than it has been over the last 30, 40, 50 years, when you're in that low growth path, it doesn't take too much to push you into negative territory on the on the growth data. So I think it's right to be having the debate. I think the point I, I would make is if we were having this debate 
12 months ago, recession was on everybody's lips. Indeed, the Bank of England famously saying that we were going to have the longest recession in 100 years. It was going to be eight successive quarters of negative growth. And the fact that we haven't is actually something to, to celebrate. The resilience of the UK economy thus far to some extraordinary shocks in energy prices and the cost of borrowing is... Uh, something that very few people predicted 12 months ago, and it has crystallised. Kirsty, what was it that you spotted a couple of weeks ago? What was the kind of feeling that you were picking up? Uh, it wasn't one singular thing. I, you know, I, I read the business pages uh, religiously, um, uh, religiously, you know, as a consequence of my job, and I was just beginning to get a creeping. Uh, feeling that, that that things were taking a significant kind of downturn, there's some a number of kind of high profile potential insolvencies. Now I am no economist, <laughs> uh, but I know I have some friends who are who are economists, uh, you know. And I spoke to them, and, and and some of the things they were flagging, which I will sort of flag to you, is that you know the number of insolvencies that we have in the UK are now it's in the first nine months of this year at their highest level. Uh, in any period since 2009, which obviously was the uh, was the aftermath of the uh, of the bank collapse, you know, lenders are you know the high interest rates mean you know credit is drying up, bank and and businesses are, are deleveraging. Um, I mean, if you look at some you know some some charts on graphs on these sorts of things, it all looks pretty scary. And then on consumer growth, it's kind of a gut instinct, you know. Um, you know, I don't want to take my own personal experience and extrapolate it for 70 million people. But, you know, like a lot of people uh, who were lucky enough to work from home during COVID, you know, that meant that I wasn't spending very much on travel and food and what have you. And I made a fair amount of savings. Well, those savings have gone. Um, you know, personal taxation is at its highest level since the 70s. Uh, the Middle East war has just increased that sense of insecurity that everybody feels, along with, uh, you know, the ongoing war in Ukraine and, and the price surge that we all experienced over the energy crisis. So, you know, I think if you have savings left, you're probably hoarding them now rather than, you know, spending them. And for a lot of other people that spending... Uh, has dried up. And and given the uh, level of, you know, we are a service economy fundamentally in the UK. Um, uh, And, you know, if consumer spending dries up too, uh, I think that's a a huge problem. So, and whilst um, uh, I think Downing Street is fairly confident that it's going to hit that Rishi Sunak target of inflation halving by the end of the year, down from 10 to about 5.3%, possibly even... Uh, a little less inflation and um, interest rates are going to stay, you know, high or where they are now f- for quite some considerable time. Because to, I think the MPC would, would probably be of a mind that to move them now would just uh, would just be problematic in terms of running the risk of fueling inflation again. So interest rates, you know, uh, high. I think you know mortgages. Even if you haven't got a fixed rate mortgage that's coming up. You know, you're going to be cautious. You're going to be been looking at that, the ongoing cost of living crisis, people's insecurity, um, and a massive surge in insolvencies all kind of point to me that, you know, and there are some economists that say we're already in economic mm. contraction. We're already in recession. The figures just haven't caught up with it. And why this matters, obviously, is next year we've got a, uh, we might have a general election. The government could go as far as January 2025. Uh, the cost of living is going to uh, be the dominant factor in any election. Uh, and that matters hugely in terms of when the timing of, of that election is. And if we're in the middle of a recession, you know, it's going to have a, a uh, a consequence on whether, you know, Downing Street decides to go early, go for a for a May general election, or push it back to the autumn. Yeah, Simon, the timing in all of that is interesting because, you, as you say, the kind of warnings and forecasts often say one thing, and then what transpires is something else. So I suppose as we sit here in November, if you were to look back at what was predicted and forecast, and where we are at now, and then project that forward, what can you say about 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 the accuracy of predictions and forecasts and about how that then translates into a bit of a forecast from here on out? There's, there's a couple of things that uh, the UK 
has struggled with disproportionately and they've fueled the negative forecasts of last year, which was a very, very high gas price. And gas has a disproportionate impact on UK household spending power because it is both the principal mechanism by which which we eat our homes, but it also provides the swing capacity for electricity generation. And some of the forecasts that were made in the autumn of last year were based on a gas curve that was 12 times higher in price terms than its pre-pandemic levels. That's exceptionally difficult for households to absorb. But one of the reasons those forecasts proved incorrect was that the gas market responded to those high prices by shipping more gas, particularly from the US, Qatar, Norway to mainland Europe, brought prices down. And therefore, the scale of squeeze on household spending that had been feared in some quarters didn't actually crystallize. And that has given some of those economic forecasts a really bad name, so much so that Ben Bernanke, the former head of the Federal Reserve, has been brought in to do a review of the Bank of England's forecasting protocol. But what does that mean going forward? Well, we're not going to have the same big deflationary or disinflationary impacts that we've seen in the last 12 months to, if you like, bail households and bail those forecasts out. But the only part of what I thought was a really excellent summary from Kirsty on the economic outlook that I felt was missing to give it balance is we're now back in a position of real wage growth. And real wages, that is, after adjusting for inflation, uh, those have been shrinking throughout the last 18 months, meaning the other good point that Kirsty made, household savings or excess savings, which wasn't, weren't made, made by everyone, but were made to the tune of about £250 billion during the pandemic across the whole economy. Inflation has eaten into the value of those savings. So if you like, that ability to use some of those to keep the economy afloat is now pretty much exhausted based on my data. But the cavalry in terms of real wage growth is coming over the hill. And that is the hope. And the analogy I give to clients when I'm meeting with them is there's a there's a baton being handed over from excess pandemic savings to the return of wages growing ahead of the rate of inflation. Now, like any students of the UK, uh, Great Britain's relay team at the Olympics, you know that a baton drop is only an Olympic cycle away, and it can happen. But the hope, and there is always an element of hope in your forecast, is that that transition happens and keeps the UK economy out of recession because the pandemic recovery, the excess savings become exhausted at a time when that headline inflation comes down. And we're thinking about how Downing Street, uh, both 10 and 11, so the Chancellor as well, are thinking about this, they are hoping that they get some of the credit for bringing inflation down and people start to feel that their their income, their major source of income, wages, are going up faster than the rate of prices. And also, final part of the consumer spending jigsaw, is those people who are relying on the state pension or benefits or have their wages linked to the national living wage, are all going to see those increases go up at about 7 or 8% in April next year, at a time when I expect headline inflation will probably be 4 or perhaps even high 3 percentage points. That's a big real terms increase. The hope is, politically, that they gain some credit for that, but economically, that that maintains consumer spending. And Simon, can I can I ask? Obviously, just looking forward to uh, the autumn statement. Now, obviously, yeah. you know the Conservative MPs will be putting a lot of pressure on Jeremy Hunt to introduce tax cuts in that autumn statement. There are some reports that there might be some fiscal headroom to be able to do that. Mm. In terms of making sure that that smooth baton pass, if you like, uh, takes place. Uh, do you think he he should look at it now or should delay to uh, to the budget in the spring? Um, and do you think in terms of the King's speech, there was a missed opportunity there in terms of, of, of measures that could have been brought in to uh, kind of help support, you know, businesses at a time when, you know, they are, like I say, sort of, you know, struggling from a credit point of view and deleveraging? Yeah. I mean, Kirsty, great, great questions. The, the bit that I feel the commentariat and 
particularly backbench MPs fail to understand is that stability generates its own reward. And this is why, actually, when Rachel Reeves went to the US with her pitch on Securonomics, and I'm not wading into the political merits of the two economic visions, but Securonomics, where we don't have a perma-crisis of politics, uh, either fueled by Brexit or pandemic divisions, actually will unlock more uh, business investment will unlock a better consumer sentiment. And I think the idea of tweaking with marginal tax rates, be they corporation tax rates, VAT, income tax, misses that bigger picture that a really grown up mature economy like the UK generates growth by having a secure and stable backdrop, not an attempt to try and micromanage or put a, put a bit of sugar rush either for political or economic reasons into the economy. And therefore, my personal preference, and it is a personal preference, is that Jeremy Hunt should ignore those siren voices and commit to a degree of stability, which, give him his credit, he absolutely has brought to the Treasury since he inherited the mantle from Kwasi Kwarteng. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of the uh, King's speech, do you think that was a bit of a missed opportunity for uh, businesses or is a legislative programme not really uh, that impactful in terms of, uh, you know, macroeconomic? I think from a macroeconomic standpoint, uh, very few investors, uh, very few economists look at the content of a king or queen speech uh, legislative program and say that changes my outlook for for the uk economy there'll be much more focus on the 22nd of november and the autumn statement um but also uh perhaps bring it closer to my industry and some of the potential capital market reforms that are going to be unveiled um, following the jeremy hunt's mansion house speech in july one of the real Uh, impediments at the moment to UK economic growth is the ability to raise finance on public markets, public uh, equity markets, because of a long-dated outflow of investors allocating funds to UK public companies. And I hope on the 22nd of November we hear more on that. Uh, I've written in the Times recently on some of the proposals I would uh, bring forward. Why? Because actually one of the things that the government and successive chancellors from George Osborne uh, through his various successors all the way now to Jeremy Hunt have instructed the Treasury to look at in greater detail is what I would describe as the full economic impact of their spending decisions and their tax framework. In the context of levelling up, this is making sure that the full economic impact of uh, the, the the tax system is is factored into decision making. What does that mean in plain English? It means that at the moment you look at the United States and the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips Act. That is sucking in investment into the U.S. economy and triggering a level of growth far outstripping anything seen in Europe. We have to be aware of that as a competitive challenge to the U.K. economy growing uh, back anything near to its trend growth rate. And so capital market reforms that use our big, you know, second biggest capital markets in the world pull investment back in, I think is a key part of getting that growth going because it's very, it's unclear that some of the bigger infrastructure projects or some of that tweaking of marginal tax rates on the consumer side is going to do anything like that same job. Yeah, and it's fascinating as well because obviously uh, I, I should imagine not only is Jeremy Hunt kicking himself that he never came up with the with the phrase securonomics himself because <laughs> uh, it's very much a kind of conservative mantle. The other big problem they've got in terms of, of, of doing anything from a legislative point of view that might help the economy is is their own party. Again, we've, we've seen their ability to, uh, to, to have any kind of uh, relaxation of planning laws completely stymied by conservative backbenchers who, you know, all represent constituencies where they don't want house building. House building is a great way of, of in, improving growth and, and productivity. Mm. And so Labour's not only kind of um, 
stolen the march on that and been able to own that kind of planning reform, house building reform. Uh, it's also, and this is why I find this dividing line over over net zero, which is more in rhetoric than in reality uh, for the Conservatives. But, but actually, again, you know, it gives Labour a much more... Uh, you know, when you think when you think Sunak's pitch is, you know, long, you know, decisions for the long term, actually it is Labour's twenty eight billion pound green, you know, prosperity plan, albeit delayed. Uh, but you know, it has a narrative there about you know a response to IRA and the ability to invest in the long term and create you know a new renewables market or a greater renewables market that in turn will make us energy secure. So it's a much more convincing kind of longer term narrative coming out of Labour than weirdly it is coming out of Conservative Party at the moment, which has as its kind of strap line, you know, uh, decisions taken you know, for the benefit of the long term. Mm. Kirsty, can, can I ask a question as to whether... Uh, no, I'm not supposed to be asking the question. No, feel free, guess, Simon. Feel it free. is a chat. You feel ask free. away. Right. <laughs> is, do you think that Labour are yimbies in opposition and probably nimbies in government, or am I being too cynical? <laughs> Uh, I think I think you'll have it in pockets. Um, uh, it, but, but, but when you look at the spread of uh, Labour constituencies, it is fundamentally easier for them to be yimbies because they are a much more, um, you know, urban-centred uh, representative body than uh, than the Conservatives, which have got a disproportionate amount of leafy shire seats, if you like, where mm-hmm. where house building is 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 problematic from a from an MP's point of view. So I think they will be more yimby than nimby. Um, but but more than anything, more than anything else in life, you know, it's just a better sell. You know, it's a stronger narrative right now and you know and again and again and again you know you've got this diminishing uh you know set piece opportunities for the conservatives between now and the next election no matter when it is next year or into 2025 and you know every time they have one of these big set piece opportunities where they own the stage you get these sort of individual policy announcements, some of which are good, some of which are curious, but there's no thread that underpins it. There's no authentic thread. Whereas actually, if you look at the story that's beginning to emerge from Labour, and Labour get criticised about, oh, they don't have enough policies. At this stage of the game, it doesn't matter. What you need is convincing uh, narrative and a couple of key policies that speak to that. And actually, on that, they're, they're running rings around the Conservatives at the moment. Very interesting. Uh, Simon, let me finish with this. Rishi Sunak, perhaps in a unhelpfully short-term way, but, you know, very helpful from a Arab discussion point of view, set out five pledges at the start of 2023, uh, three of which are directly um, economic. One is having inflation, two is getting the economy growing, and three is reducing national debt. It means that we can give him a report card whenever we want to, actually. So can we do that now with you? How, mm. how is he getting on on each of those three pledges? Um, will he have inflation by the end of the year? Is he creating better paid jobs? You may have already alluded to the answer on that. And is he reducing national debt? Yeah, so on the first, uh, the inflation picture. So uh, next week, uh, we get the October print for UK inflation. And uh, we think it'll be 4.9% down from 6.7%. The Bank of England are even more uh, constructive, think 4.8%. So, But either way, there'll be a big drop as some of the big increases of last year fall out of the annual comparison. And so does that put him on track to have a sub-5% inflation rate in the fourth quarter of the year? Yes, it does. So um, maybe not A, but B plus uh, in that regard. Um And although I have to say how much of that is because of government policy and how much of that is pure base effects because in you know the energy prices didn't do what they did last year um uh, the government claiming credit i've, I've always been skeptical they sh- they didn't deserve nearly as much flack as they got on the way up and they don't deserve much of the credit on the way down um second one i think was in terms of growth uh well the bank of england last week in their monetary policy reports see no growth at all in 2024 um having said that the bank of england had been wrong and pessimistically wrong quite a lot recently. So I wouldn't say that's the only metric on which to try and give them an interim uh, report card. Um, 
But if you look at it from where the UK economy is versus 12 months ago, it's in a considerably better position in terms of its current level of economic activity and the outlook um, versus the inheritance, if you like, that Rishi Sunak had. So maybe maybe C uh, on that. Um, And then debt falling as a percentage of GDP, so getting debt falling. Um, Well, there you, you know, that's a five-year forecast, uh, which we'll get details from the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, on the 22nd of November. He didn't have much headroom on that forecast back in March. Gilt markets, the, the markets for government debt, have become more expensive to try and refinance. That's the bad news on the public finances. But the good news on the public finance is that RPI, the Retail Price Index, which is the basis on which about a quarter of government borrowing, the the cost of servicing that is linked to RPI. That's come down rather faster. And that added to fiscal drag from freezing the tax thresholds will give a bit more um, headroom and allow him potentially to to hit that debt falling target. But the one thing I would say is it feels like sort of five weeks, five months is a long time in economics. Um, five years in terms of the horizon for getting debt falling. There's a lot that can happen in that period. So uh, maybe maybe B, uh, B minus perhaps. Simon, thank you very much. It's been great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for your time. Absolute pleasure, Callum Kirsty. Thank you. Thank you very much. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.